all have different backgrounds and experiences which we bring to our role as firefighters and EMS professionals. This adds to a true sense of diversity by allowing us to bring our unique skills to the table. David Berez has had plenty of different opportunities to learn a multitude of skills, from EMT to police officer, and even an internship with the medical examiner in New York City. He's taken his experience, and rather than just sit on it, he's structuring it into a system that can help others improve their organizations and their teams. He's had some incredible opportunities to serve and has had some very close tragedies in his life. He's focused on taking those experiences, good or bad, and using them to help others better their situations. I was glad to have this conversation and am honored to bring it to you. So without further delay, here's my conversation with David Berez. All right, Mr. David Berez, thank you so much for coming on the United Firefighter Podcast. I appreciate you, my man. Thank you. I'm honored to be here with you. So we actually came in contact uh, through Sarah Correll and her her efforts for the power of our story. And she we found her on LinkedIn. I found her on LinkedIn anyway. I was introduced to her through a third party, uh, Natalie Riley, who is all about the... Uh, nothing but love notes movement. So it was cool to, to get to know you kind of in that setting. I mean, I kind of just jumped in on that meeting and went for it and, and uh, I loved it, man. It was great. How long have you been uh, involved in that? So I met Sarah kind of through the same uh, process that you did about a year ago. This was February of last year uh-huh. um, when I was looking to see how I could further my cause to help out other people and potentially find avenues to support other law enforcement officers. I had jumped on LinkedIn and made a profile for myself. And um, honestly, I saw what John McCaskill was doing with mindfulness and um, meditation. Uh, for those that don't know, John, he's a re- retired Navy SEAL. And uh, I blindly reached out to him and I was like, wow, this guy's pretty cool. Um, and he was like, man, I'd love to help you out with what we're doing. He goes, but I don't get cops. <laughs> like, what? Like he doesn't He's understand. Like, you guys them. are a different breed. And, he goes, <laughs> and this is a retired Navy SEAL telling me this. I'm like, this is just completely crazy. He goes, but I got He's like, you guys are mental. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was very strange. Uh, cool guy, though. Awesome guy. Anybody that doesn't follow him it should be because he's a very special uh, person. Um, but he had, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say introduced me to Sarah, but definitely made me aware of her. Uh, they had had connected at some point. And uh, so I had reached out to her and uh, she's like, yeah, come join us Thursday nights. And I did that Thursday night in February of, I guess, 2021. And I haven't missed one yet. So uh, it's been an awesome experience to surround myself with her and the people that she's connected with. She's really Heck established yeah. an incredible network. Right on. Yeah, I totally agree, man. I'm looking forward to getting into those meetings, getting deeper and deeper. But uh, so let's talk about your your service. Um, I'd like to, to focus on like the dynamic service that you've been a part of and and now that you offer, and we'll get to that. But um, man, 20 years as a police officer, 10 as an EMT, uh, you did an internship with the chief medical examiner. That must have been cool. Honestly, talk a little I bit about more uh, in that one year than I did in my right. entire professional career. Man, that would be so cool. I think it would be so fun just to do like one year or even six months. But uh, yeah, man, that sounds all super cool. So tell us, tell us how your career path 
went and how, how those kind of overlapped or if they did. So there's uh gosh, I first became just such a believer in the American flag. I think that's the first thing first. Um, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors and uh, my grandfather, I've never met a more patriotic human in my entire life. He was so proud to be in this country that every morning and every night he raised and lowered his flag. And I saw that growing up as a kid. And that made me believe in the values we have here in the United States of America. Uh, so that's kind of the initial foundation. Uh, when I was 14, my parents had just gotten divorced. I needed something to, to keep me focused. And uh, a friend of mine who lived up the street was a volunteer EMT at the local rescue squad. And I'd watched him zoom by my house a million times with his blue light on going to fire, you know, uh, fire and EMS calls. I was like, wow, I want to do that. Uh, so at 14, he brought me in and I uh, started volunteering as an EMT. Was there for about 10 years uh, through college. Uh, volunteered when I was away at college as well. And when I graduated college, I did that internship with the medical examiner's office. And uh, I decided that, you know, emergency services was definitely where I wanted to be. The exposure I had to law enforcement through that and through the EMS experience uh, was I recognized that that was the place for me. So at uh, 23 years old, I started with uh, Seaside Park Police Department in New Jersey, um, which for those that are familiar with uh, MTV and all the craziness that they've put on from Seaside, uh, yeah. that's where we're at. And um, I enjoyed my one year there. They put me through the police academy and then I was hired by my hometown in East Windsor. I spent the next 20 years there. Awesome. Right on. So then you got it to kind of like give back to the community you grew up in. Exactly. That's cool, man. Which was so special, uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, throughout my parents' troubled marriage and divorce, we, there was more than one occasion where the police were at our house. So those guys knew me when I applied for the job there, which was uh, interesting. Uh, they also had seen me you know, through the years, you know, through the rescue squad and stuff, but right. uh, they were so supportive. Everybody kind of took me under their wing and was like, yeah, let's, let's do this and uh, get you hired here. So had a lot of support and it was awesome to be able to uh, give back to a community that gave so much to me growing up. That's awesome, man. Well, I think your involvement speaks volumes in regards to like how you were perceived by them. You know, uh, a lot of people say that when you, when you're getting, when you're trying to get hired on with like public service police or fire, and I've heard this, especially in the fire side is that, you know, it's, it's about all who, you know, and I'm like, I don't know if I believe that. And now being on the inside out, I can see it more as like, it's about who knows you, you know, very well put. I like that. I agree. Not who, you know, but yeah, man, that's, that's awesome, dude. How they just kind of took you under their wing and whatnot. Um, you talked about being an EMT. Is that you started out with EMT or how did that? Yeah. So in New Jersey, um, you, know, you have to be 16 years old before you can take that course. Gotcha. Um, and uh, so I did two years as a volunteer, 14 and 15 um, as a junior cadet and got the experience of being around the, the building and around the, the equipment and the trucks. Uh, can't go out on calls until you're 16. Mm -hmm. But uh, I started taking the class when I was 15 and was certified when I was 16. And um, yeah, the volunteer experience was really special in many different ways. Um, just the ability to help people. It was, it was immediately made me feel purposeful. Um, yeah in a time in my life where I, I just needed something to, to generate that, that sense of self, that self-awareness. Um, and 
it worked for me and the excitement of it. And it was fantastic. So yeah, that was the early years. Yeah. That's awesome, man. It's true. You know, if we don't, if we don't have that sense of purpose, then our story kind of ends, you know, we can either like choose to end it or just kind of casually complacently let it get away from us. And then it just kind of ends regardless. So I, I totally 100% agree with you when it comes to that purpose and that meaning and, and public service, man, it, it, you're definitely going to find it there. But at the same time, we have unique challenges. We have some pretty, you know, we see some pretty grim things um, with everything going on with, you know, police departments right now, there's, there's some hostility towards the boys in blue. Um, there's a lot of challenges that we face and uh, sometimes we can take it. Sometimes we can't. And sometimes we just, we've had enough. And uh, to be honest with you, suicide among first responders, particularly firemen, is what lit the fire for me to start this podcast and, and not necessarily the podcast specifically, but I was diving into a bunch of different information and I read a statistic that in 2017, the uh, suicides had actually surpassed line of duty deaths. And, and that blew my mind. I was like, that, this is crazy. How is this happening? That's insane. Um, you know, like, like I'm thinking personally, like I've got the best job in the world. How is this happening? How is it happening? So I dove in, I did a deep dive and, and I was learning all about mental health. I was learning about, you know, physical health. I, I mean, just all the elements, the, the politics that goes into all of this and how all of these things just kind of accumulate over time and, and just kind of can push down on us. And so I started learning about like coping mechanisms or um, <clears throat> not just coping mechanisms, but building healthy habits and, and mindset and all of this. And so all of that, uh, information that I gathered, I felt like I was just stockpiling it, you know? And so yeah. I felt it would be a good idea to, to share it with other, like if I'm looking at this and if, if I'm looking for this information, I'm sure other people are. So that was the whole reason behind this, but you have a very personal, unique story when it comes to your buddy, Danny. Uh, talk to, talk to us a little bit about that. If you don't mind. I, for sure. And I appreciate, um, being having the opportunity to memorialize him in this way and, and knowing that he did not die in vain and um, that we can try to help the next person that's suffering. Uh, my experience with law enforcement suicide actually didn't start with Danny. It started before I was a police officer uh, when I was in college and the a police officer from the town that I eventually worked in uh, had committed suicide while I was in college. He was also one of my mentors and I ended up writing my senior thesis about him. So that was my first experience with it. Uh, and then in 2018, December 26th, my buddy Pablo, uh, who worked for the sheriff's department in the county that I uh, worked in, also took his own life uh, the day after Christmas. And then Danny uh, was a police officer in Trenton, um, where he ended up taking his own life July 29th of 2020. So Danny was suffering from a bunch of different things uh, related to betrayal. And I go back to that concept a lot and uh, something we see, as you just mentioned, in, in, or at least alluded to in law enforcement quite frequently, um, especially when it comes to the community, our politicians, even our own in-house leadership. Um, I don't know how that necessarily parallels with uh, the fire service. I'd, I'd love to hear uh, those comparisons, but 
on the law enforcement side, uh, the one thing that I know is unique to us is we don't often get the community support that some of the other public services get. And I understand that, um, but that's not something that we can truly internalize because I truly believe the intentions of law enforcement are genuine. Uh, the officers, the individuals themselves, they really do go out of their way to try to make their communities better. And in Danny's case, um, he was a detective sergeant with the tactical uh, squad and um, not a SWAT team like, like people may be picturing, but uh, similar to like a street crimes unit. And uh, at that point in time, the summer of 2020, that was uh, you know, post George Floyd. And uh, the community was really starting to turn on these guys. And he struggled with that a lot. Uh, a community that he put so much time and effort into, a community he grew up in. And um, just because he wore a specific uniform or he appeared a certain way, uh, the community all of a sudden in the, in the light of media response felt that he was no longer part of who they were and the fabric of who they were. And uh, yeah. that, that, well, that, struggle, that was a struggle for him. And, you know, obviously the political leadership and the, and the internal department leadership was um, a level of betrayal as well, because they didn't come and stand behind these, these street level guys that right. were trying to out there make a difference. Uh, yeah. And they took a political position and not a, uh, not a good one. Not an ethical position. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. no doubt. No doubt. Yeah, yeah so man, it, it's rough. Go ahead. You know, I was going to say, and then, you know, he also suffered with some home betrayal, which prefer not to get involved with on a live yeah. forum. But yeah. Um, so all those pieces together, he just couldn't anymore. Uh, even the yeah. love of his own kids couldn't stop him from, from the darkness that he was in and needed to escape from. He was, I don't get it at this point, um, but uh, I don't judge him for it. And yeah. I just recognize the sadness. And I don't want one of those phone calls ever again, which is yeah. what led me on my journey to try to help others. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's, that's super commendable. Um, you know, these experiences that we have and, and the, the people that we lose, we, we see it all the time. Like the people, the individuals who are left here and the individuals who were kind of in the sphere of that fallout, we can either take it one of several ways. You know, we can close off and isolate. We can kind of follow the same path or, or we can take it and turn it into something good. And I, I think that's what you're doing, man. So that's awesome, dude. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned the fire service aspect, you know what, we're, we're not, uh, we're not, uh, immune to this kind of stuff either. I mean, like I was talking about in 2017, I read that stat and, and it really had an impact on me. Um, so I was learning about the different things, like the different reasons people were saying, uh, they were being affected. And it was this, this sense of guilt that we tend to hold on to about like, um, and you know, as, as, as an EMT, you know, when people need help, sometimes they're just past the point of you being able to help them. Correct. And, and in EMS and, and fire, we're trained to save people, you know, like that's our main driver. You got to save them, got to save them. And so if we are continually running on these people who are just past that point and it just adds up. You know, it does it adds up with some of our guys, you know, when, uh, when we talk about, you know, post-traumatic stress and, uh, and 
holistically, and you often relate that to veterans uh, coming back from uh, foreign theater, uh, those are, and I don't at all downplay what they what those guys go through, but it's generally a shorter period of time. Um, they're deployed for you know six or eight months, even up to a year, and maybe they'll have two or three deployments in their career. Uh, and then they get out and they go on to live their other lives. They take all that stress with them. The, the difference, not for better or for worse, just different uh, in public service, whether it be EMS, fire, police, it's death by a thousand cuts. You're spending mm-hmm. 20 or 25 years being in the trenches, regardless of rank. Even uh, yeah. you know those in the high, higher ranks, they, they're still out there. They still see it. They're still dealing with it. Um, and that compounding pts is just it's sometimes unfortunately beyond what people can handle and they don't know how to channel that and yeah. the toolbox that they need just doesn't exist for them um, but we're trying to change that yeah it's true and then a lot of times uh you know the ones who feel they have to be strong and and hardcore for the community they don't feel like they can let that armor off they don't feel they can take that armor off to actually get that help, you know, they're, we're of the mindset, like we're the ones that need to help people, not the ones that need help. And so we have this dichotomy of like, we're, we're doing our best to like be strong for others, but at the same time, we're weakening ourselves from the inside and living up to that name and that image and it all compounds. And then finally, rather than ask for help, you know, we're just so stubborn that we go and we do something harmful to ourselves and and uh, it's really important that we pay attention to that and, and understand that, you know, we're here for each other. We like, we've got to be the brotherhood that agreed. we all envisioned, you know? Absolutely agree. And unfortunately on the law enforcement side, if you um, show any indication of weakness or the fact that you um, may have some str- something you're struggling with, first thing they do is take your badge and gun away from you and put you on leave. Uh, and that's quite frankly unhelpful. I don't think that's yeah. what 99% of the folks need. Um, they just need more tools in the toolbox to keep them strong. And it's not weakness when you need help. It's when you, when you can identify that you need help yourself. I think that shows your strength. Oh, absolutely. 100% agree with you. 100%. Yeah. When you have that punitive effect, it definitely makes you not want to reach out. For sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's Very like, counterproductive. Yeah, exactly. 100%. So it's like, whenever, like, our kids are kind of the same ages apart. My oldest is 17, but our our three, we each have three kids and our kids' ages are about the same distance. But whenever my kid comes to me with something, you know, something sensitive, if I keep making fun of them about that thing, they're never going to come back to me. Like, they're never going to come back to me and talk to me about anything, let alone that thing. So... Yeah, it it definitely has a reflective aspect in regards to like being a parent, building those relationships, you know, even just being a friend. Like, I know we kind of poke fun at each other in the fire service and the police service, but ultimately, like when it comes down to the wire, like we're there for each other regardless. So that's awesome, man. You talked about just a bunch of hose draggers. It's yeah, right. We're not. uh, Trust me. I swear we can do more. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, you talked about deployment too, like the, the guys going out on, on military leave and whatnot and deployments. Um, uh, who was I talking to? I was talking to somebody about, oh, I, you know what? I think it was Olivia Mead who does the uh, yoga for first responders. I had a conversation with her awesome. and uh, she had talked about how ultimately like you're, 
you're going on a deployment. Like every time you go to work, when you're in the public service arena, you're going on a deployment, whether it's a 12 hour shift or a 24 hour shift at PD or a 24 to a 48 hour with the fire service, you know, like you're away from your family. You're, you're under the, you're, you're in uniform the whole time, (laughs) you know, you're expected to perform in this manner. You literally have to be quote unquote on, you know, that whole time. Absolutely. And, and as you know, like there's some downtime, you know, when you're not responding to calls or whatever and the fire service, you know, it's the same way, you know, we have our downtime, but ultimately like we're mentally still on, like our switch is flipped on. And so calls or not, we're still mentally and like adrenally <laughs> at the Absolutely. ready, you know, so. But he, honestly, even when you're not technically on the clock, police officers for sure, and I know many firefighters as well that are still have that hypervigilance 24-7, whether they're being paid for it in the moment or not, they're, they're always watching they're always looking out for the people around them. Uh, absolutely. That wears on you after, after time. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely like a part of our training, but it's honestly like a part of who we are, you know, cause we got into it because we want to help people. Right. For sure. And so like that desire to help people in general never gets shut off. Like you can never shut that off. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to the point where we just can't let someone else step in. I think that's where we get into trouble. Um, yeah. When we, uh, when we drive by auto accidents or things like that on the freeway um, and you know, you'll see people on their phones. So, you know, they're, they're calling someone, they're getting help. Um, when we're off duty, there's that little moment where we're like, should I, should I stop and help? And then that to me is like the point, you know, where you choose that because that right there is showing us that we're hypervigilant, right? That we're on like our desire to help people is there. Um, But I feel like it's that moment where we make the active choice to either feed that or let ourselves rest. Does that make sense? For sure. It's like we can totally stop and help them and that's fine. But we, at the same time, we have to accept and understand that there are other dudes on duty right now. There's other people on duty right now. They yeah. are paid right now to go help them. So let them do that. <laughs> now, just want to help you, everybody. Two years post-retirement, I still go through that. Um, I, I still struggle driving past a crash um, or even somebody sitting on the side of the road. I'm like, eh, should I stop? Well, my kids are in the car. I don't really want to do that. Like, right. I go through that whole process still yeah. two years later. And I don't know if that ever goes away. I guess yeah, we can revisit this conversation in 10 years. We can talk about it again. So. <laughs> right. We're still out there trying to help people. <laughs> Let me help you. Damn it. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, right on, man. Well, all of this kind of has, has kind of uh, accumulated into what you're doing with six, four consultants. So talk about that a little bit. Tell us how that was born and, and what, what service is it that you offer? So 6-4 has definitely, uh, so my badge number was 6-4, 64, um, in two different things actually, when I was a uh, special in Seaside and then when I got hired full-time, complete coincidence, nice. uh, it was pretty cool. So I figured that uh, in this next phase of my life, might as well pull that forward and 6-4 consultants it is. Um, 
honestly, it was born out of initially not knowing what to do with my next chapter. I had no intentions of going this direction originally. Um, quite frankly, when I retired, I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, pandemic hits and I was like, well, let's see what comes up with it. I filed for you know, all the paperwork and uh, have this LLC established. Um, but originally my thought was I would do active shooter response. I would do some trainings. I had all these certifications, might as well get them, you know, get use out of them. And the pandemic hits and nobody wants to spend money on anything other than something COVID related. And, you know, almost like other threats just all of a sudden ceased because, you know, COVID was here, uh, which I found interesting. And, you know, Folks in our industry realize that you kind of have to multitask when trauma comes, you know, traumatic things come up. Yeah. Uh, they just because one thing happens doesn't mean the other thing went away. Right. Uh, yeah. You got to push through. So it's uh, it, my initial idea didn't really pan out. And, and I was like, crap, what am I going to do now? So uh, I transitioned into the uh, other aspects of my training, which I was a drug recognition expert, a DRE. Uh, that's a law enforcement specific uh, training and um, evaluation process where you're identifying folks that are under the influence beyond alcohol. Uh, gotcha. And it's specifically used for DUI. Now the training itself uh, is good for identifying people in any circumstance being under the influence. But as far as uh, using it for testimony, uh, traditionally, it, it's for DUI circumstances. So not really knowing how to manage that. Uh, I know there was some other folks that have retired from law enforcement in our area that uh, became experts, defense experts, I should say, uh, using our um, prosecution training. Um, so I looked into that and there was nobody really in my area doing the DRE related stuff. There was only two others in New Jersey, one North and one South I'm in central. So it looked like an opportunity to, to build a business as being a defense expert. Now I kind of look at it as going to the dark side, uh, but uh, I truly believe in the program. And um, I truly believe that everybody has the right to make sure that their prosecution is done correctly uh, and that they're not being screwed. So uh, it's, it was an opportunity to, to use my training and, and, and leverage that. But at the same time here in New Jersey, we changed our laws and marijuana is now legal in the state of New Jersey. And it truly affects folks in the workplace. Um, and we need an opportunity for employers to identify when they have employees that are under the influence. So they're not uh, making a mess in place of employment. So it was another way to help people. Uh, and that's what I find to be my why, my purpose is to help people. And in this case, it was employers and uh, therefore developed a program to uh, assist employers to help identify uh, those under the influence within their sphere uh, and try to mitigate workplace accidents. But the most important part to me uh, of my consulting business is where I find a way to help other law enforcement officers. And that's kind of where I find my greatest purpose. And that has looked different at different times um, between writing articles, uh, talking to people, uh, just being a support network for other folks and becoming a resiliency uh, instructor and facilitator. Um, I was introduced to that because of my buddy, Danny, who took his own life um, 
And my buddy, Michael, who worked for the local prosecutor's office, was our chief uh, resiliency uh, officer for the county. And he's like, dude, I think you can use this, number one, for you. But I think your mission is to help others. So let's get you trained up. And uh, got, he put me through the program and associated me with the, uh, the state level program. Uh, he has since retired and started his own company called Resilient Minds on the Front Lines with our state's chief resiliency officer. Nice, uh, nice. And I've been part of their network and their training program. And uh, as soon as I finish uh, phase three of their instructor level uh, training for their program, uh, I'll be traveling throughout the country with them teaching resiliency to you know, other officers, other agencies. Uh, and they're, they've expanded into uh, private businesses as well. So, um, which has been a great opportunity, helps for, you know, fulfill that why that I have internally of helping others. And uh, resiliency is a big deal. Um, it's certainly been a big buzzword, but I don't think people truly know what it means. Uh, but I love teaching it and I love helping people. And it's about changing your mindset, like you spoke about earlier, uh, to a place of positive psychology, just you know, spiraling up instead of spiraling down. And, uh, there's, you know, that has been the most fulfilling part of what I'm doing now. That's awesome, man. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We, uh, we accumulate all of these certifications, all of these trainings, and then we retire and we're like, well, I got this arsenal full of stuff. I just don't know what to do with it. Like, what, what do I do with it now? And some guys are contentious letting that kind of sit on the shelf, but, uh, man, you're, you're like me. I, I wouldn't be able to. Like I'm about six years you know, away from it's retirement. Interesting because yeah. the, state, the state gives us all this training. We didn't pay for any of it. Right. You know, and, yeah. uh, but we have it. And just to, to let it go away and, and to let it dissolve is, um, I don't know. I, I think that you truly don't know anything until you've taught it to somebody else. Yeah. yeah. And no matter what that it is. And, uh, and, and if that, training that information dies with you, then what good was it in the first place if you can't pass it along to someone else? So I love that concept and um, being able to to pull forward, you know, my old life into my new one. And, you know, it's, uh, I wish more people would do it because there's, it's, yeah. So if you look at certain things that we have, like, can I teach somebody or can you teach somebody how to put out a fire? I don't know. It's probably not our job to do that. I was a drug guy most of my career. It's really hard to legally buy and sell drugs in the private market. Um, But there's certainly levels of training through that and experiences that you can pull forward and teach people skills. So um, yeah, it's uh, been fulfilling for sure. True. Right on, man. Yeah. I've mentioned what I, what I've labeled the key three, which is, uh, you know, and of course everything I do has got to have some type of, some type of uh, fire related uh, issue. So I call it the key three. And so it's all about like lighting the spark, that, that passion, your why you mentioned your why, and then like stoking that flame through your career, you know, fostering those things that keep you interested, fostering those things that you're talented in and then passing the torch. And I feel like that's what, that's exactly what you're doing right now. So that's awesome, dude. Um, moving forward during COVID, uh, moving forward during COVID has been uh, pretty interesting, pretty dynamic, like, process because yeah a lot of people are scared they close off completely they just kind of go in themselves and shut down and uh to be able to move forward and and 
and uh, create something that is going to help people in a dynamic way. I think, I think you've done that beautifully, man. And I think it's, it's super important, especially now because there's so much fear out there and uh, everybody's just so afraid of all this stuff. And for example, we have, uh, I teach the paramedic program uh, at the local community college here and we have hospitals. This, this blows my mind. So during COVID, we have to have uh, certain precautions in place. And I, and I get that. But we also have to have these paramedic students go on uh, ride-alongs and do hospital clinicals for their, you know, they have to get so many skills done. They have to have so many hours under their belt before we can send them out to the field. So as instructors, we're training them to go out into the field and operate. But then during class, hospitals and agencies won't let them in there because of COVID. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, and so then we graduate these people and they're done and they take the national registry and they're golden. But where, where do they go? Out into yeah. the field. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's crazy because these organizations are like restricting the people who are supposed to be working in the field from working in the field. That's and crazy. then all it's doing is like putting them way behind the eight ball when they come out into the field, rather than preparing those people more, they're like putting them way behind and sending them out into the world. Like, good luck <laughs> all because of COVID, you know? And it's like you hail nurses, you hail, you know, police officers and you hail firefighters as the ones who have been there the whole time. And I've been there the whole time, you know, I I've worked through this whole thing and, and uh, they hail us as heroes. And then when we need something or we have to get something done, they're like, nope, mm -mm, COVID's out there, guys. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, been like this blanket excuse for people that yes. just don't want to get involved in something. Yeah. And it's like, you know what else is out there? Everything. Everything yeah. more dangerous is out there. But <laughs> anyway, I digress. But you did bring up a good, <laughs> you did bring up a good point about, you know, teaching people. And the definition of being a master is that you have the uh, ability to teach that skill or concept to someone, you know, you're, you're only a student until you become the master really, you know, and only like by definition, like I said, if you can effectively teach that concept or teach that skill to someone else, by definition, you have become the master. So that's awesome, man. Wow, that's a lot to absorb there. I don't see myself as a master of much. So now you can you can put that on your business card. Yeah, you know, master David. Like <laughs> my wife will put it right in the shredder. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the master of anything. That's awesome. That's funny. Uh, you know, when you brought up COVID, it's the whole it seems like it's all we talk about today. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, for me, especially in the beginning of COVID, um, I was happy with it. I know that sounds so bizarre. Um, no, I get it. I get it. I want to hear what like, you have to say, but I get it. <laughs> I, it felt like the whole world came to a screeching halt at a time when I needed to catch up. So I was like, damn, this is cool. Sorry that nice. everybody else Perfect timing. Up, but um, for me, it was like this weird calm. And, you know, finally was able to take a breath and enjoy being home. Yeah. I know it sounds so bizarre, but 
it, to me, the timing couldn't have been any better. And it's weird, but yeah, um, it's true. Man. All the people that got it and got sick or even passed from yeah. it. But for me, it, it, it was, uh, the timing couldn't have been better. Yeah, it's true. And it affects us all in different ways, you know, based on where we are at in our life and what we're doing. And, and sometimes it does take something like this to, to slow us down. Absolutely. You know, we, we either kind of fall into this apathy or this weird state where we're just going, 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 and we're apathetic to everything else, like our families and things like that, that when something happens to shut it down, we take a step back and we're like, oh, shit, I guess uh, I really needed to take that minute or take that breather or do that thing or, you know. Absolutely. It gives you the chance to reevaluate what's actually important. Exactly. Recalibrate, reorganize, reengage, all that good stuff. Absolutely. Um, so we talked about your career. We talked about your cool. Uh, we didn't talk enough about this medical examiner thing, by the way. <laughs> so I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. For sure. How did that, yeah. How did that go? It, first of all, it was awesome. There's no other word for it. And, and I know people are like, oh my God, that guy's a weirdo. Um, no, it's so cool, man. It's so interesting. <laughs> when I was in college, um, so I originally went to college to uh, go uh, for a bio program and then go to medical school. My first semester, my freshman year, I take botany. For those that don't know what that is, it's the study of plant cells. And a week into that, I'm like, yeah, it is ain't for me. Um, I'm out, uh, which is when I started gravitating towards the law enforcement side of, um, you know, emergency stuff. So by senior year, um, my friends and my fraternity brothers knew exactly where I was headed. And, uh, my one buddy, Chris was like, you know, my aunt works for New York city medical examiner's office. Like they're EMTs, doctors, paramedics that work with cops and investigate stuff. I'm like, wow, it's kind of cool. I never really. Yeah, that sounds cool. That. So I hooked up with his aunt um, professionally and uh, <laughs> <laughs> throw that in there. Um, and uh, she brought me over to the office and was like, yeah, if you want to do this, we have a spot open for, for next year. So let's, let's talk about this. So uh, my buddy's aunt hooked me up there and uh, I spent a year as um, an intern for the medical legal uh, investigations unit of the um, medical examiner's office for New York City out of the Manhattan office. And uh, it was an unbelievable experience. You know, we started out doing some research the first uh, month or so to understand uh, exactly how things work there. Uh, they also have NYPD's uh, missing persons unit is in the same uh, office, same building, uh, floor as the medical examiner's office. They work hand in hand. And uh, so I got to interact with those guys. And then I was like, wow, this is awesome. So um, establishing relationships, you know, no matter what you're doing, I think is uh, so important. And I just became like the cool kid in the office uh, talking to all these, you know, crunchy old detectives that <laughs> spent 40 years on a job yeah. searching for missing people through the medical examiner's office. Yeah, um, that's crazy. And they started taking me out on calls. Uh, so, you know, there was about six to 10 um ME calls per day. And uh, wow. they generally start. So even if there was one at, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night, the ME wouldn't come out until, uh, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, so as soon as we got into the office, like seven, eight o'clock, uh, we would regroup, we'd look at the list of calls that needed to be attended to. And uh, I would tag along with the, uh, the investigators from the ME's office. And we'd go out and everything from, you know, your standard unattended death that was truly a medical 
uh, to mob hits to all kinds. I mean, it's New York City. So, like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, people jumping off the roofs of buildings and, you know, all kinds of anything imaginable uh, where somebody could lose their life. I, I saw there in that year. Wow. Um, and when they bring the bodies back, they do the autopsies the following morning. Uh, and we were engaged with that as well. And wow. um, obviously you can't kill somebody that's already been dead. So they let you uh, get involved, get your hands dirty at the autopsy. Right. Which was super cool. Um, yeah. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> exactly. Um, and the one thing that always stands out for me is there was a mob hit where we brought the body in and the, um, the person had been shot excess of like 15, 20 times. I don't remember anymore. It was a long time ago. Wow. And they took these long probes they're probably about three feet each. And they stuck them into every hole uh, from the outside in. And then uh, they started the autopsy. And when we opened the individual up, to get a cause and manner of death, obviously the, the manner of death is going to be homicide at that point. Nobody can shoot themselves that many times, but the right. cause of death, you have to figure out which was the lethal round. And um, so oh, looking yeah. at all these probes and, and the dynamics of how a bullet travels through the forensics part of it was so unbelievably um, mind boggling to me. I loved it. Uh, and I learned more that year working there as an intern than I did in my entire career. It, it was such a special experience. Certainly yeah, wrong. the uh, science behind all that sounds crazy. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. But I'll tell you, the doctors, the pathologists that work at the ME's office, they are sh- a unique individuals. For sure. <laughs> um, there was one woman there who was like super goth. Um, they would have parties like, you know, at, at night or on holidays in the morgue. Like it was a yeah. very, very strange group of people. A very um, specific also- culture. Very specific culture, but they were the best at what they did for sure. They were really awesome. I learned so much from them. Um, And then years later, not years later, a couple of years later, uh, on 9-11, you know, I had gone up to the city for that because I was a police officer already at that time. Mm -hmm. I had connected with some of my old colleagues from the medical examiner's office that were still there uh, as part of that recovery effort. So that tied, you know, it bridged both parts of my a career at that point. It was, it was yeah, that, that's pretty incredible. So when you go up there to operate as a resource, do you let them know, like the people like command or whoever's running the show, do you let them know, yeah, I was a police officer. I am a trained EMT and I did a year with a medical exam. So now you can like kind of get put in a bunch of different roles depending on what exactly. they need. Right. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I, once I realized, uh, kind of the setup of what was going on there, um, <clears throat> We had gone up uh, not as a coordinated effort because our, unfortunately and sadly, our department said, oh, not our city, not our problem. We're not getting involved. Oh, wow. We're 35 miles south of New York City. Yeah. Like, it was crazy to me. But anyway, so my partner and I went up there um, on our own, not representing the agency. And uh, we connected with the ME's office because that's that was my wheelhouse. That's what I knew. Yeah. And uh, they put us right to work from there. So That's cool, man. That's cool. Yeah. It's, it's always, it always comes down to like asset or liability for me. I mean, Absolutely. I did an episode where it's like, you know, when you go to work, you're either an asset or you're a liability. You're just dragging on the system, you know, uh, sucking it dry or you're contributing to the pool. Like it's either one of those things that in my experience, that's what I've seen. So I think it's great, man, that like all the different dynamic elements that you've been able to operate in and, and all of that kind of comes to a head when 
when you know New York needed you, when the country needed you, you were able to take that experience, take that dynamism and and offer it like up on a silver platter to help people. So that was that's what it's all about, dude. It is, but it's not about me. Um, right. It's about using what you the opportunities you've had before today to affect right. change today yeah. um, for somebody else. Yeah. Do you get gratification out of it? Self-fulfillment? Of course. Uh, but that's what gives us the fight to do it again tomorrow. Absolutely. Uh, and but for me, it's always about helping somebody else that needs it more than I do. Yeah. And it like compounds, like your dynamic ability compounds your, um, I guess, ability to help others. Yeah. Um, certainly drawing from all the different levels of experiences for sure. Um, but again, it, it's, I never make it about me. It's, it's my why like to, to help others, whether it's my own kids or, you know, somebody on the street that, that needs a hand crossing it. It's, um, yeah. To me that I just find being able to put a smile on somebody else's face puts a smile on mine. So absolutely, my man. No matter how how big or small, right? Absolutely. Good deal. Well, uh, this has been awesome, man. Thanks for thanks for coming on. I want to make sure that people know where to find you on social media. Your six four consultants has a website, I know. But uh, go ahead and share with us any way you'd like people to connect with you. Uh so six four consultants has uh, my website has all my uh, contact information on it for those that uh, need an easy resource. Uh, but I am on LinkedIn under my name, David Perez. Uh, my business does have a LinkedIn page that truthfully I don't uh, manage very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, uh, I keep it contained to you know, my personal page primarily. Um, nice. And my email address and phone number is also on my website. So anybody that wants to reach out for the services that we provide, awesome. Um, but honestly, if you just need to reach out for someone to talk to and unload, my phone's always on. And uh, if I can be a support network for you, that that truly is what means the most to me, that you can succeed, um, not about making myself succeed. So. Right on. Well, I appreciate it, man. I think that uh, I think what you said is reflected in in all the things you're trying to do and And honestly, all the things you've done throughout your career. So I appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on the show, buddy. Thank you for having me, man. It's been such a great honor to to get to know you and meet you through this process. So thank you. Appreciate it. I feel the same. We'll, uh, We'll be in touch. We'll keep in touch. For sure. We'll talk soon. Thank you all so much for listening to the Ignited Firefighter Podcast. We're growing and the community is just becoming more and more associated with quality people. And I love seeing the new faces in the group. So please... Click the link in the show notes, join the Ignited Firefighter Podcast Facebook community, and be a part of the conversation. If you want to learn more about the service that uh, David provides, click the link to his website that's also in the show notes. He might offer some services that your organization could benefit from. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, if you see a need, own it and take action. Be the ideal firefighter you would want on your crew. Be Ignited.